You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as you're doing that, we also have our slide notes available today through our Google Drive folder. If you want to access that through the bulletin, then the QR code is available for you there. You can also access those at later times if you want to refer back. We've been working through the Gospel of John over the past month and a half, two months or so, and um, really been emphasizing the purpose of this Gospel, that it's a Gospel that is written to uh, help us believe in Jesus. Uh, Not just initial belief, so it's not just a Gospel for the unbeliever to bring him to salvation, but it's also a Gospel to strengthen the belief of the believer. Um, and so we, um, we are reading and studying and seeing it through that lens that uh, the disciple, the apostle John, has written exactly what he has written to help keep us believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And so maybe two of the big points of application that we've seen so far in this book is one is the, the time frame that it takes for you to trust in Jesus when you're going through something difficult, steadily decreasing, right? So you go through a difficult circumstance, you encounter bad news, you encounter uh, something that's just not what you would have chosen for your life, is the time gap between you finding that information out and you turning to trust Jesus and his goodness and his promises lessening as you're growing and maturing and being sanctified, right? Does it take two weeks, three weeks? Does it take five friends to come convince you and remind you that God is good and that his promises are good? Does it take you 10 minutes to to process through some difficult things that have come to your life and being reminding of yourself that that God's promises are good and that he has good intent for his children? Um, what What I want us to come out of this study of the gospel of John is for all of us to have that time gap shrink a little bit. That we, we, we start to turn to Jesus quicker than we're currently turning to him in, in an attitude of trust, in an attitude of belief, especially when we find ourselves going through difficult times, difficult circumstances. The second kind of point of application that we've really been hitting on is, are we being faithful in the context that God has placed us to, to share Jesus with others, right? And so we've talked about our family context, our um, work context, our um, neighborhood context, those that we live closest to, um, and then our, our people that we spend our time with uh, involving our hobbies, right? This could be your children's hobbies, right? Do you spend time at the, uh, at the ball fields during the week, on the weekends, at practice and at games? You're inevitably sitting around some of the same people who are there for their kids' purposes, Um, maybe you don't have kids yet and you find yourself during your free time uh, doing certain activities and it puts you around certain people, right? You guys know that I enjoy hunting. I hunt at a local club. Uh, It oftentimes allows me to cross cross paths with other men that are a part of our hunting club, right? So are we being faithful in the context that we have to reflect Jesus, to make much of Jesus with the people that um, that we know, people that we're constantly coming in contact with, okay? So We want to see that time gap shrink, that we're trusting Jesus quicker and quicker, believing him faster and faster in our life. And then also we want to make sure that we're we're sharing Jesus faithfully with the people that we come in contact with uh, most commonly. We come now to verse 35, and I want to read for us our text again, just so that those who weren't with us can kind of see 
uh, where we're going today. We're going to finish up chapter one. Um, John, like any gospel, is going to have sections of narrative where it's more here's what happened, here's kind of the story, here's how the, the story moves forward. And then there's going to be other times where somebody is teaching and, and it forces us to kind of sit down and, and settle in a little bit on, on a shorter passage. Today's more narrative, more advancing the story. And so we're going to look at a larger section of scripture and, and really see a lot of application, I think, for us today. What do we do or how do we act in light of how we see the characters in the story acting this morning? It says, the next day again, John, talking about John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. For our summary sentence today, Jesus chooses us to follow him, changes us radically in the process, and then equips us to call others to come experience him as well. Jesus chooses us to follow him, changes us radically in the process, and then equips us to call others to come experience him as well. For our kids, Jesus chooses us, changes us, and wants us to tell others about him. You see people responding and coming and inquiring of Jesus in this passage, right? Um, But I I think the passage clearly indicates to us who is actually doing the choosing and who is actually doing the finding in this passage. I think we can see that God sovereignly sets the stage for each man to follow him in this passage. While they, on their side of things, they responsibly choose him, but only in response to him choosing them first. Jesus will even say this later when he says that, he tells his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you, right? Um, And we see that that Jesus uh, and God the Father are ordaining and orchestrating these events. Chris talked about this in his prayer request this morning. God does this. He, He orchestrates events. He orchestrates circumstances, uh, for his purposes, right? Even the fact that, that Jesus intentionally seeks out Philip in this passage, that directly affects the salvation of Nathaniel, 
right? It's Philip who goes and gets Nathaniel. So, so Jesus is even capable of thinking beyond just the immediate to like the next step of, of what he's trying to accomplish, right? So, so God is ordaining and, 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 and guiding and um, directing these circumstances to allow these men to come and follow him. The word found is found five times in this passage, and the definition for the word means to diligently search for something and then to joyfully discover it to diligently search for something and then joyfully discover it. That's the the mindset of the disciples when they're telling each other, we have found the Messiah. It's this idea that they've been looking for him, right? They're they're, they're from Jewish descent. They've they've got the Jewish lore. They've got the, the prophecies and the anticipation of one who was to come. Right, So they know back in Genesis 3.15 that, that the Messiah has been promised, the, the, the serpent uh, crusher who is going to come and make things right. So they're talking to each other, and hey, we have found it finally. We have found the one that we've been waiting for. It's the same word used in Matthew 13.44, where the individual finds a treasure, buries it, and then sells everything to obtain it. It's the, it's the same word for finding the sheep in the parable of the, of the lost sheep. So it's this idea of diligently seeking and joyfully discovering it. I think what's neat to see in this passage, too, is that all of these guys come to Jesus differently. There's different circumstances that lead them to their response, right? You've got the first two, one who's named Andrew, the other who is unnamed, who is very likely who wrote the gospel of John, that John, um, he remains unnamed because we've said the author doesn't really refer to himself at all in this gospel. So it's very possible that he and Andrew are these two disciples of John the Baptist who respond initially, right? But these are guys who are kind of immersed in the, the following and the teaching of John the Baptist. They are very diligently looking for the Son of God, the, the Lamb of God, because John the Baptist is telling them, right? So theirs is kind of a direct application to sermons and teachings that they're sitting under that they want to follow Jesus. Then you've got uh, family member uh, evangelism that takes place, right? Andrew goes and gets Peter and, and, and explains to him what he has found, right? And Peter responds. Peter wasn't sitting under John the Baptist that we know at this point, uh, hasn't necessarily heard the direct teaching that Andrew was. Maybe Andrew's been passing that off to him on the side, but Peter directly responds to the instructions that Andrew gives to him. Then you have Philip who encounters Jesus directly, right? Jesus comes and finds him. And then you have Nathaniel, who's pretty skeptical at the very beginning, right? Like he kind of proceeds cautiously. Philip comes and tells him, and he's pretty doubtful, but maybe gives the benefit of the doubt to Nathaniel, who's his buddy, and says, okay, I'll go check this out more because I trust you than I trust what you're saying, right? So you have different circumstances that lead these guys to come to follow Jesus. And so I think it's a good reminder to us that a lot of times salvation looks different for the people that, that we're witnessing to as well. Different circumstances lead to different people following Jesus uh, in different ways. Um, there's not a one way that it has to happen. All these people are exposed to Jesus. All of them respond to Jesus. It just comes to them a little bit differently. Okay, We're going to look today, and if you've got your notes there in front of you, you see we've got nine points today. Right, And that's not going to take us as long as you might think. Okay, We're going to kind of walk through this quickly. But again, because it's narrative... There's less teaching taking place and more implication and application that we kind of want to draw out from these events that we see here. So 
very heavily application-based this morning, and I hope you'll see that and be able to find something to take with you today. Number one, we want to act in response to teaching. Act in response to teaching. For our kids, teachers are supposed to help us follow Jesus. We want to act in response to the teaching that God gives to us. Underneath that, um, I put seek teaching that incorporates Christ-exalting application. We need to be faithful always in our life to put ourselves into situations, into local church contexts where solid biblical teaching is taking place, but that it also climaxes with Christ-exalting application, right? We don't want to simply fill our heads with knowledge. We don't want to simply know more about God. We want to experience the life change that should be coming from that knowledge, right? I would love to think that everybody that's sitting in this room will always be at Sovereign Hope, right? That those who aren't even members yet will eventually join our church and and be a permanent uh, fixture within our church moving forward. Those that are already members will, will never leave. Circumstances will never change, and everybody will live in this area and attend this church until we die. But I know that's not likely. I know that's probably not the case. So listen to me in saying, and hear me in saying this, that wherever God takes you, wherever your life takes you, you always need to be in a place where solid biblical teaching is taking place in the context of the local church and that it is being driven by Christ-exalting application, that that the teaching is designed to move you forward in your sanctification, right? You may not have noticed the switch, and it probably took place maybe a year ago, maybe a little bit longer than a year ago. Um, If you go back and listen to, like, old sermons that, that we've done here at the church, Way back when, you'll, you'll realize pretty quickly that we didn't have summary sentences back in the day. Like those kind of came about probably in the last three years, maybe four years. Um, I was reading an article about just how to preach better, how to teach better, and, and came across an article that talked about the concept of being able to summarize your sermon. Like if you really know your sermon well enough as a teacher, you ought to be able to summarize it in one sentence. And so I took that and kind of applied that to my teaching that I want you to be able to get a real good snippet, a snapshot of what it is I'm going to be teaching you today at the very beginning. I read another article, again, about a year and a half ago, that talked about kind of the difference between teaching and preaching, right? And I was having this conversation with, with Marcus not too long ago as we were talking about elder stuff, that the teaching aspect is, is um, not that it's absent from application, but that it's more geared towards information, right? Something that you might would find in a seminary class, something that um, is more, more meant to kind of just inform you about the Bible, whereas preaching is meant to expose your heart to things that you should be doing in light of what God's Word has to say. So about a year and a half ago, most of my points that I give you shifted from informational-type points to application-type points. So even today, first one, is an application-type point, right? That we act in response to our teaching. We don't just sit back and, and absorb it, that it demands that we do something with it, that we act in response to our teaching. So we need to seek teaching that incorporates Christ-exalting application. I love what we see here. John the Baptist, who is a far better man than me, humbly endorses Jesus and then readily accepts some of his closest guys leaving him to go follow Jesus. I don't know if I could have done that. 
that, that would be very hard to, to watch people closest to you that you've been pouring into, that you've been discipling, to, to just kind of leave you and transfer their, their discipleship, their teaching, their learning, their service to somebody else and just kind of walk away. But John the Baptist readily encourages it here. Right? He remembers, this is my purpose, to make much of Jesus, to make less of me, that I'm here to pave the way for the, the Messiah. And so the Messiah is now here. John the Baptist says, here he is. Behold the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples say, hey, you've been teaching us about this. I think we're going to go follow him now. And John the Baptist doesn't fight it, doesn't argue about it. In fact, probably heavily encourages that they go do this. One commentator said, John provides a genuine model of what it means to be a minister or servant of God. The human tendency is to make a name for ourselves and to attach our names to other people, institutions, and things so that people will remember us. To minimize oneself in order for Jesus to become the focus of attention is the designated function of an ideal witness. John's a great example of that here. His two disciples are the first in this passage to make movement and to make a decision to follow Jesus. So we seek teaching that incorporates Christ's exalting application. That's what these disciples had done. They had placed themselves under John the Baptist's teaching. He was giving them real-world application. When the Messiah gets here, that's who we're going to follow, right? So number two, be prepared to act when application opportunities come. Be prepared to act when application opportunities come. Good teaching should prepare you to respond well to life circumstances. Good teaching should prepare you to respond well to life's circumstances. Now, good teaching doesn't mean that you find it entertaining, right? Doesn't mean that it, it satisfies all of your personal preferences. What we mean by good teaching is teaching that is faithful to what the text says, right? Faithful to what God's word has to say, and is faithful to expose you to it and to give you action steps for something to do with it, right? And so good teaching does that. Good teaching does that. And that can come from a, a variety of different personalities with a variety of different levels of ability to do this, right? But good teaching does this. It should prepare you to respond well to life circumstances so that you can be prepared to act when application opportunities come. That's, that's my heart and desire here is that my teaching would prepare you well for things that you don't even have on your radar or your horizon yet. That things are going to come your way, potential challenges are going to come your way, even potential successes are going to come your way. And that our teaching here at this church would prepare you to handle both well, to handle both in a way that honors Christ, right? Whether it's in, in times of want and need that we're trusting in Jesus or when it's in times of abundance and success, when it would be very easy to turn our trust to the things that we've been blessed with. My hope is that our teaching here would equip you to respond well to both types of circumstances. That, that we give you a clear application for how to move yourself forward through the power of the Holy Spirit, but that you have clear steps for how to work your salvation out with fear and trembling, right? So, Act in response to teaching is the first thing that really jumps out to me here in this passage, that John's teaching, his disciples are with him, Jesus walks by, behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They immediately applied 
the teaching that they had been receiving. They immediately applied it and responded to it. All right, number two, know your purpose for living. Know your purpose for living. As they start to, to turn their attention to Jesus, it says Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Jesus confronts them here, questions them here about their perceived needs and their purpose within life. Kind of wants to know, what, what's your motive here? Like, like what, are you, what are you looking for? Now, Jesus is obviously omniscient. We're going to see that clearly later in the passage. He knows exactly what's going on, both on the inside and the outside of these guys. Right? But he wants them to, to be confronted with this question. He wants them to be challenged with this question. What is it that you're seeking in life? Like, like why come follow me? What's your purpose? What are you hoping to gain from this? Right? And it kind of got me to thinking about my own self and, and how I would potentially respond if, if a coworker or an acquaintance were to ask me, hey, hey what's your, what do you see as your purpose in life? That's why I wanted you to kind of think through that this morning in our, in our, in our uh, discussion groups. Because if we were posed with that question this morning and, and not given much time to think about it, some of us might stumble around a little bit. Right? Or some of us might be able to articulate a really great answer but may not have a life that, that proves that answer, right? So kind of step back and think, if you were confronted with that question, what is it that you're seeking in life? What is it that you're seeking? And you probably immediately know what the biblical answer should be, the, the good Christian answer should be. But as you kind of look in and reflect upon your life, what, what real answer is potentially there? If I just had to look at how you're choosing to live your life, what answer would I maybe come up with what it is that you're seeking? What is it that you're seeking? Jesus poses this question to his disciples, which I think gives us two things to reflect upon. One, we need to know the things that are worth seeking. We need to know the things that are worth seeking. And when we have a clear picture of what is worth seeking, it then starts to shape our daily decision-making. Know the things that are worth seeking and then number two, take clear steps to seek those worthy things. Jesus poses the question and the disciples respond, or these guys that will become disciples, respond with a question themselves. It says, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Their response, which is really more of a question about his lodging, is a clear sign that they desired to go with him and to learn from him. One, they're identifying him as a teacher, right? He's a rabbi to them. He's got information. He's got knowledge that they would like to obtain. And they're not content to just have the conversation right here, right? Like, the, like where are you going? Like, what's your plans, Jesus? We, we want to go with you. We want to travel with you. We want to immerse ourselves in your teaching right now. It's an indication to, to Jesus, something that he was already aware of, that they're, they're starting to have an all-in, buy-in type of approach to him. Now, there's going to be greater confirmation to that when Jesus actually asked them to, to come and follow him fully, but this is kind of an initial response here that comes about. Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they respond with a question, but the, but the answer really is, we're seeking you, right? Like, like wherever you're going, whatever it is that you teach, whatever it is you teach, we're willing to change things for that, because we've been doing this with John the Baptist. We've, we've kind of had a schedule, a calendar, an approach to this, and we're willing to, to forfeit that now, and, and life's changing 
now that you're here? So my question to you would be, what, what is it that you're seeking? And does your life reflect that that's really what it is that you're wanting to seek? Because I, I think most of us would answer correctly when we talk about what it is that we want to seek or should be seeking. But does our life demonstrate that? Does how we structure our calendar this week reflect that we want to make much of Jesus and that we want to impact our context with Jesus? Or does our calendar look more like it's designed for us and for, for ourselves and for our needs, right? Know your purpose for living. Know the things that are worth seeking and take clear steps to seek those worthy things. Number three, share what you are learning. Share what you are learning. Look what it says here. He said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, I would, I would love to preach to you this morning what that conversation was, right? Because they go and stay with Jesus for the night, and this is where they get to ask questions, and I'm sure Jesus begins to teach things to them and explain things to them because it has a, a huge impact on them here, right? They don't go find anybody or go get anybody until after this night takes place, right? So they don't, they don't have John the Baptist say, hey, here's the Lamb of God. They don't say, hey, Jesus, stay right here. We want to go get our buddies or our brothers or our family members to come follow you with us. They go initially by themselves and spend a night with Jesus, and it's after that night, post-meeting time, that it says one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. It's kind of similar to when Zacchaeus has the encounter with Jesus, right? Jesus pulls him out of the tree, says, I'm going to eat with you. And then we don't get any insight into that conversation over that meal, right? All we know is that when Zacchaeus leaves that meal, he's ready to give all his stuff away, right? Like, like salvation has come to his house is what Jesus says, and he's ready to give all of his stuff away. And we have no insight into what it was that Jesus said. How long did that conversation take? Was Zacchaeus immediately responsive, or, or, or what did that look like? We don't know. We just see the fruit of the conversation, and that's exactly what we get here. We have no idea what is said we maybe get a little bit of implication from the things that they come and tell their, their uh, companions, right? He comes and says, hey, we have found the Messiah, right? Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, we have found the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Now, we know when Jesus finds the two guys on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, the Bible tells us that he begins to show them how the Old Testament points to him, how he's the fulfillment of that. So that may have been kind of his go-to conversation right here. That, hey, let me, let me expound to you how I am the Messiah, how I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Because both these guys come out of that conversation saying, you know what, we gotta, we gotta go get some more people because we are convinced that he's the Messiah. We are convinced that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But what we see from our side of things is somebody who's being taught and then somebody who wants to share what it is they've been taught. For our kids, when we learn something about Jesus, we should tell somebody about it. We should tell somebody about it, right? So underneath this, number one, recognize the value of what God is teaching you. Recognize the value of what God is teaching you. In our discussion groups this morning, I challenge you to kind of think through what are the type of things that you're typically excited to tell other people about, right? Like I love to tell people about uh, sports plays that I see 
on SportsCenter, that I didn't get to watch the game, but I see some, some crazy baseball play or some crazy football play. Or I love to share articles with people where there's some type of crazy scientific thing going on that I've never thought about or, or some type of new discovery, right? Like you send me a picture that looks like somebody has found a Bigfoot, and I'm going to circulate that thing to everybody that I know, right? Like I get excited about sharing new information or like crazy information with people, right? If I see a funny YouTube video, I'm going to share that with people, right? I see somebody that catches some massive shark or some massive saltwater fish. I want people that, that I enjoy fishing with to see that picture. I want us to have a conversation about it, right? Because I deem those type of things valuable or fun or potentially mind-shifting or life-altering in, in some form or fashion, and the gospel should be that every single time, every single day for us, right? And it's the one thing that we're oftentimes hesitant to share. But let's just step back and say, okay, let's don't worry about so much just the gospel. Let's just talk about things that we learn on a Sunday morning, right? How quick are we to share, even with other Christians who aren't going to reject us, but to just say, hey, you know, hey, we work together. We're both Christians. Hey, you, you won't believe what we learned yesterday at church, like we're going through the Gospel of John, and that's not so that you can, uh, you can share what, what it is that I'm teaching, right? Like I'm not encouraging you to do that for the sake of my fame growing. I'm just saying we ought to be captivated, captivated by God's Word. Whether it's me teaching, Marcus teaching, Adam, Tyson, whoever, we ought to be captivated by God's Word in such a way where that's the type of thing that we want to share with others, especially other Christians who don't go here, that we work with or that we interact with, but also those who aren't believers, to be, able to, to be able to dialogue and to share and say, hey, man, I, I've been a Christian for a long time, but we're studying a passage and I've never really noticed this before. I was really challenged by this and convicted by this. We ought to desire to share what we're being taught with others. We ought to recognize the value of it. I put a, a question in my own notes. Is there anything that God is doing in my life right now that's worth sharing? There certainly is but do I correctly value it enough to see the need to share it with others? Man, God's doing all kinds of things in my life, things that I don't even know that he's doing in my life. We're going to get to the, the end of this passage where the, the, the reminder of what Jacob experienced back in Genesis where he's at night sleeping and God kind of gives him this vision of these angels coming back and forth from earth to heaven. What's the implication there? That Jacob's not alone, that there's a lot of spiritual activity happening around him, things that he doesn't even see right? Um, God's doing all kinds of things in my life. If I'm not sharing them, the problem isn't with God not doing uh, amazing things in my life worth sharing. It's me not properly valuing those things, right? And, and, and uh, Andrew here kind of gets done with this and says, man, it's too good to keep to myself, right? What I just experienced last night with Jesus of Nazareth, I've got to pass this on to somebody, I mean, this is the equivalent of him running like we often run to share new videos that we've seen or new highlights that we've seen. I mean, I just imagine Andrew kind of busting through the door and saying, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. We, we found him. We found the Messiah, the one that we've been looking for, the one we've been diligently waiting for. We found him. Andrew recognized the fruit of this conversation with Jesus was too valuable to keep to himself. He exposed, he was exposed to something great and he wants to share it immediately with others. Andrew, kind of a unique guy, he's only mentioned three times in the New Testament every time he's bringing somebody to Jesus. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool testimony of who Andrew is, right? 
He just, he's always around people, and he always wants to bring them to Jesus. Anytime he's mentioned, he's escorting somebody to Jesus. So recognize the value of what God is teaching you, and then determine to share it with those you are closest with. Those you're closest with. Andrew immediately goes to his brother. And I think too often we are guilty of assuming that we can't reach our family and someone else needs to. And I imagine that was probably the the dominant answer in our groups this morning. Is a family member more likely to respond to the gospel if a family member shares it or somebody outside shares it? I know most of the time we say, hey, I think somebody else is going to have to reach my family member for, for a variety of reasons. Right? And I've heard it countless times from parents who would say, I think somebody else needs to, to reach my child or, or to, to connect with my child because I don't know that I'm the best person to do that. And, and, I, and I'm not necessarily disputing that. But what I want you to hear from me this morning is that the normal pattern in the New Testament is for households to come to Christ based on a family member leading the way. I mean, think about that. Not just in the context of the Gospels, but when you move into the book of Acts, it usually takes one family member to get saved, and then what happens? The, the, the text tells us, and his whole household believed. His whole household believed. Not because of his salvation. It's not that his salvation counts for everybody in his household. But the picture is, is that, hey, family member got saved here? We need to consider that too. Most of the times it's a male family member. Most of the times it's the head of the household that causes drastic change for his household. When he gets saved or when he gets serious, the whole family kind of falls in line behind him. So you might would say, and you might be accurate in saying, hey, I'm not the best person to reach my family. Somebody else is. I just want you to know you would be the abnormal situation in the New Testament, right? Like, it shouldn't be that all of us would say, hey, somebody else is going to have to reach my family, but maybe there's one or two of us in here that's really good at reaching our family. I think that the, the normal pattern should be, hey, we're the best people to reach our family. That's the context that God has put us in, right? And so there's a whole lot of reasons to, to say and to argue for why we wouldn't be the best, but I think all of them could be tweaked a little bit to say that's exactly why you're the best, right? You might say, well, my family sees me, like, and my family knows me and, and knows that I'm not perfect, right? What better way for somebody to believe in the gospel than to see somebody who they've known start to act radically different moving forward, right? I think that the, the pattern that we see in the New Testament is households respond to family members. We certainly see it right here where Peter responds to Andrew who comes and shares with him this newfound knowledge. Number four, Listen to those who love you. Listen to those who love you. We don't get any dialogue here between Peter and and Andrew. All we have is that Andrew has this great encounter with Jesus, runs to get his brother, right? Like, who's the closest to me? Who do I love the most? Who do I want to know what I know right now? It's my brother, right? So he runs to Peter And all we see is Peter coming to Jesus. We don't see any type of dispute or any type of questioning, which just kind of had me kind of pause for a second and think about the fact that, one, I need to surround myself with people that I trust, people that I trust enough to respond to quickly in my life, 
And I need to be, number two, humble enough to listen to their new ideas for me. All right, so surround yourself with people you trust. Be humble enough to listen to their new ideas for you. We need to be willing to admit that others may know what is good for us when we don't. And we can believe them because we know how much they care for us. So what do I mean by this? I mean, I think all of us need to have people in our life, whether it's a brother, sister, family member, or, or just really close friends. There ought to be people that we are so close to in life that when they challenge us in some way, that we're immediately prone to pause and say, you might be right. We need to be surrounded by people in our life that can give us guidance and wisdom about big decisions in our life that we trust enough to kind of listen to them when we don't know what to do. Not that, not that there's going to be times in your life where you feel like the Holy Spirit is calling you to do something and everybody else in your life doesn't see it. I definitely think there's potential for times like that. I just think it ought to be very few times in your life where you feel so compelled that the Holy Spirit is calling you to do something and nobody else in your life can affirm that. I've got some money in my life right now that is operating what I would say completely outside and absent from any type of guidance and wisdom from friendships in their life. And it's making me extremely angry because this has drastic effects on other people and there doesn't seem to be a willingness to listen to people that God has placed in this person's life to help guide them. We shouldn't have situations where we're operating separately from like good, strong counsel and wisdom. The book of Proverbs, I mean, just is constantly talking about how we need a counsel of wisdom in our life. That, that it would be unwise to operate and make decisions and do things without feeling some affirmation from people that are really close to us. And it's got to be the right people, right? Like not just people you went to high school with that you just love and have a lot of interest with. I mean, it's got to be like the right type of people, right? People that are committed to the same things, the same purposes, that are seeking the same things that you are. The Christ-exalting type things. But what I love about Peter here, because I tend to be a skeptic, what I love about Peter here is I think he, he trusted Andrew so much that he didn't question this news, that he just went with it, he just rolled with it. Right? And we need people in our life like that, that when they challenge us, when they bring something to us, that our, our first initial quick response is to trust that person because we know they care about us. That they wouldn't be bringing this to us if they didn't think it was good for us. All right? Listen to those who love you. Surround yourself with people you trust. Be humble enough to listen to their new ideas for you. Number five, expect to be changed. Expect to be changed. Peter comes... Andrew brings him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, when you study the Gospels, you know that um, Peter has a lot, of, a, a lot of work to be done to him before he can really be used by Jesus the way that he wants to, to really be the, the, the founder and the starter of the church movement in the book of Acts. Right? He, he's, he's, he's emotional. He, he's, he's quick to make decisions. He doesn't always think through his decision-making. He's got times of great belief and then times of great doubt, right? He goes from walking on water to sinking in the water. He goes from saying, uh, Jesus will never let anybody crucify you to kind of cowering in the corner when he's, when he's being crucified, right? And so 
Peter's certainly a great example of all of us that we're all a work in progress. What I love about this first encounter is Jesus, who is omniscient, who is the great worker of our salvation, basically tells Peter what he is going to become. I mean, basically identifies him as this guy who is going to become a rock, which is what that name Peter means, right? You're Simon right now, but you are going to become an individual that we are going to build the church upon, that you're going you're gonna to be instrumental in doing this. And Jesus recognizes that and identifies that and communicates that right from the very beginning to Peter, which gives me two things to kind of point here. One, understand you have areas that need to be changed, right? All of us that come to Jesus, all of us that have already come to Jesus, we have areas that need to be changed. And I'm sure Peter would have, would have confessed that and identified that. But the second part here is expect Jesus is powerful enough to work the change. It's not just that we all need to be changed. It's that Jesus is powerful enough to do the change that we need. There's not any, there's not any hindrance in our life. There's no sin struggle in our life that Jesus can't help us gain victory over. He has the power to change us. And when you, when you read the Peter in the book of Acts and you read the Peter in First and Second Peter, it's not the same Peter that shows up here. It's just, he's just not the same. Right? He, he's, he's a work in progress and he has progressed greatly by the end of his time on this earth. God has been radically changing him. So for us as believers who come to Jesus, we come and we need to expect that there's areas to be changed and we need to expect that Jesus is powerful enough to work those changes. Jesus calls us with an end goal in mind. He knows where he plans to take us. He who starts the work, Philippians tells us, finishes the work. Right? This is kind of equivalent to what we see with Abraham. Remember when Abraham's name is changed from Abram to Abraham? And it was kind of an embarrassing name change because Abraham means that he's a father of many nations and he has no kids. Right? Like, like kind of an embarrassing name to go around and say, hey, you got to start calling me the father of many nations. Dude, you don't have any kids, right? I know, it's weird, but like that's my new name, right? Like, like, like it's an embarrassing thing almost, but it also indicates what God was planning to do in Abraham's life. So for Peter here, I mean, maybe Andrew kind of snickered when he said, hey, your name is now going to be Rock. Andrew's like, this guy's not a rock. Like this guy is, is so unstable. He, he, he's an emotional basket case. Right? But Jesus communicates what he plans to do in Peter's life. He has the power to do it, and he has full plans to accomplish it. All right? Expect to be changed. Number six, influence those around you. Influence those around you. 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. There's some questions about the interpretation of this right here as to whether or not it's Jesus who decides to go or Andrew who decides to go. The way the original language is written you could kind of make an argument for either one. Um, doesn't necessarily change what's going on here, um, but it potentially gives more of a nod to Andrew in that Andrew continues to drive people to Jesus here. Um, either way, somebody has a decision. Somebody has a, a desire to go to Galilee, and in doing so, they find Philip, and Jesus says to him, follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. Two things here. Jesus shows up. I think he's got Andrew. I think he's got Peter. And I think he's probably got John with him at this point. And they show up and they start talking to Philip. 
And Philip responds to this. And I have to believe that the text is helping us to see that the influence that Andrew and Peter had in this situation was a positive situation that contributed to Philip's response here. That, hey, this is the context where Peter and Andrew lived, right? And they're not, they're, 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 they're good Jewish guys who are worshiping God according to the old covenant. So these aren't what we would classify necessarily as, as lost pagan people, right? So they were, they were, they were called as a, as a Jewish old covenant individual to point people to, to Yahweh. That Philip responds here shows, one, that their lifestyle certainly wasn't harming the gospel, right? Philip doesn't look around and say, man, I'd love to follow you, Jesus, but you got those two guys with you, and, and I know those two guys, and if those two guys are doing this, I don't want any part of this, right? Like, I think the presence of these two guys encourages Philip in the midst of this conversation that, hey, those two guys are doing this. Like, man, I definitely need to perk up and listen to what Jesus has to say here. Be intentional to expose those in your context to the gospel, right? We certainly don't want to be people that do something to harm the gospel. We don't want to be certain types of people at work that, that don't reflect the gospel well, that, that we're the guy with the bad attitude. We're the guy who complains a lot. We're the guy who talks negatively about the boss. And then we try to tell them about Jesus, right? Like Jesus is great. Like he'll change your life, just not here at this workplace, right? Because here we got the same things to grumble about whether you believe in Jesus or not, right? Like, like our lifestyle can't harm the gospel. So we, so we certainly have the negative side. We don't want to harm the gospel. And then we want to be intentional with it in those contexts. And I think that's where we see, especially if Andrew's the subject here, that Andrew kind of drives the caravan to this area because he knows he has a strong influence here. He's got friends here. He's got people that he's connected with where they live. And Philip responds, influence those around you. Don't be a harmful presence for the gospel. Be an intentional exposer of people to the gospel. Number seven, invite skeptics rather than argue with them. Invite skeptics rather than argue with them. Philip responds, he's all in, right? And then it says in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is the first kickback that we seem to get a little bit here to to people talking about Jesus, right? John the Baptist says, hey, there's the Lamb of God. Two disciples say, we're gone. Like we're with him now, Right? Jesus brings Andrew and another guy, maybe John, over for the night, and they talk, and, and Andrew's all in, and Andrew goes and gets Peter, and Peter's all in, and then they both go get uh, Philip, and Philip's all in, and now they try to get Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's like, nah, I don't know about this. And it may have been that Nathaniel was so immersed in the Old Testament that he knew, hey, there's no prophecies about somebody from Nazareth fulfilling this stuff. Right, the, 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 the good thing doesn't come out of Nazareth. He also may have been extremely biased towards people from this area. That there may have been some prejudice-type feelings towards people in Nazareth to where he's not, he's not ready to just embrace this. And I think it's helpful for us to see how Philip handles this. One, your goal isn't to win an argument every time you're sharing the gospel. Philip does his job here. He's trying to connect the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, something that Jesus will do throughout the gospel. He exposes his friend to Jesus, but I think he also is humble enough to recognize he doesn't have all the answers. That Nathaniel's got some questions. 
and it may not be best for me to try to struggle to answer those questions, Nathaniel just says, come on, let's just go over here. Like, there's going to be people over here that can answer that question for you, right? So number two, sometimes experience is better than conversation. And this is where, you know, people kind of talk about, like, what's the purpose of the church? Is it for believers or unbelievers? Is the Sunday morning service designed for believers or for unbelievers? Man, I hope you guys feel confident, comfortable enough, confident enough that if you're dialoguing with a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, and they're kind of resistant or skeptical to the gospel, that you don't have to do that by yourself. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I want men's and women's dinners to continue because I think that's a great avenue to say, I get, I get that you're not really following me or you're not believing me. Hey, why don't you just come hang out with some of us, right? Like, like let's kind of separate ourselves from the conversation for a little bit, and let me just show you what it looks like for a group of people to follow Jesus. Right? The New Testament's full of accounts where uh, people observed how the church was functioning and acting and how they were loving each other, sharing their stuff with each other, and people were coming to the church regularly to be a part of this new movement because they were seeing and observing what this looked like in the context of community. Man, you're always welcome to invite people to your C group, to men's and women's dinners, to any of the things we do, to invite them to a Sunday morning service. Because I think that's kind of the approach that Philip takes here with Nathaniel. He says, okay, like I've, I've kind of done my job of like trying to tell you about Jesus. You got some questions, you're skeptical. Let me bring you along to some other people that might can answer those questions for you. Sometimes experience is better than conversation. And sometimes we need to invite the skeptic to come experience the gospel change rather than try to win an argument with them. Number eight, be submissive rather than defensive. Be submissive rather than defensive. For our kids, Jesus uh, knows everything and sees everything. Be submissive rather than defensive. So Nathaniel agrees to go. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Two things here. Number one, expect to be known within the gospel community. Expect to be known within the gospel community. Here's the thing about Nathaniel. The way that Jesus talks about him, he was probably the type of guy who was moral enough to be prideful about it. Right? He, I mean, he seems to be a pretty good guy. Jesus identifies him as a guy without deceit. It's interesting. The way the language is is that he's basically saying, Here's a guy from Israel who's not Jacob, basically, right? Who's the first Israelite? Who's the first guy who gets that name? It's Jacob, who's known as the deceiver, right? And so Jesus is pretty much saying, here's the guy that's from Israel that is kind of the model Israelite, like what we want Israel to be. But Nathaniel's not content with being this guy who's just simply without deceit. He's moral enough to be prideful, but he recognizes he has greater needs, Number two, find hope and comfort in being truly known. Rather than being defensive about Jesus' omniscience here, he finds it comforting. It's kind of like the Samaritan woman. We'll read about her in John chapter 4. But remember when Jesus is talking with her and he basically says, Who, who's your husband? Right? And then he, he says, yeah, you, you don't have one. Well, you, like, you got a bunch of men in your life, right? 
And so they have this dialogue, and then what does she do? She runs back to her town, and what's the first thing that she says about Jesus? I've met a guy who can tell me everything about me. Like, he knows everything about me, and she's totally okay with that, right? Like, she's not defensive. She's not uh, fighting against it. Like, she finds great comfort and hope. And here's somebody who gets me. Here's somebody who knows me. Here's somebody who knows me intimately. Like, for a sinner, omniscience is scary, because Jesus sees everything, he's everywhere, he knows everything, you can't, you can't get away from him. And, and, and who wants to be under that type of surveillance, right? Like if I want to do the things that I want to do, the last thing that I want is to feel like a video camera's on me all the time, right? But, but Nathaniel says, oh, you saw me under the fig tree? Most commentators think that there was some type of spiritual thing happening under that fig tree. Nathaniel was praying for something, potentially even reading this passage in Genesis maybe about the, the latter that there was something that was bigger than just you knew what I was doing, but almost in some way that Nathaniel was asking for God to do something, and Jesus is the confirmation of that potentially. Because it really resonates with Nathaniel for him to jump from, I don't know about that, you're the son of God. I mean, like, like he, he's just like, wow. Like, for you to say that to me, I mean, just confirms things for me, that you're the king of Israel, you're the son of God, right? So, He's, he's compelled by the omniscience of Jesus. He wants to be known in this way. And that's certainly true for us when we come to Jesus, that, that Jesus now knows us intimately and, and tries to create a community where we can be known intimately as well, right? That we want to be able to surround ourselves with people who want to know us, who desire to know us, that we're okay with knowing us so they can push us towards sanctification. Lastly, number nine, remain in awe of the gospel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Two things here. Number one, rejoice over what God is currently doing in you. Jesus doesn't try to downplay it. He says, man, you think this is good. I've got more things in store. But Nathaniel certainly connects that there's something special about what God is doing right then and there. Because remember, Philip tells him, hey, we've the son of Joseph, he, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Nathaniel takes it further and says, this guy's not just the son of Joseph, he's the son of God, right? So we rejoice over what God is currently doing in us. But then number two, we anticipate that God's going to do even more for us. What's Jesus mean by the, by the ending here? What's, what's really cool here is that Jesus looks back into the Old Testament to a story that they would have been very familiar with. Again, this is Jacob who feels alone and abandoned. God gives him this vision of a ladder where angels are descending and ascending back and forth from earth to God the Father. And the picture of this vision is this ladder that connects God the Father with humanity. And that's what the angels are using to traverse back and forth. Here, there's no mention of a ladder, right? Here, Jesus transforms the story to say, the angels are descending and ascending on me. So now Jesus has progressed the story further to say, I'm the connecting point between God the Father and humanity. And the disciples are going to learn that through his ministry. They're going to learn that through observing him on the cross. They're going to learn that through the resurrection. It's going to radically change their life. Now, that's not new for us. That's, that's the current stuff for us, right? This was new stuff for them. But it's a reminder to us that we don't ever need to lose sight of how glorious the gospel is, that Jesus came to be perfect for us, that he died in our place so that we can be connected with our Heavenly Father. 
but that he's not done, that this isn't all we get, right? That there are still greater things to come for us that follow him. All right, so all this has been application today, right? All these points and even the sub points today have been application driven. So I want to leave you with one question for you to kind of ponder and think about. Can you think of anyone that doesn't know your testimony that needs to? Is there anybody in your life that you need to connect with that doesn't either know that you follow Jesus or how you came to follow Jesus that needs to know that information, that that needs to, to have you share with them your experience? Somebody in one of these four contexts that you could relay your testimony to, somebody in your family, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your hobby, somebody at work, that you don't necessarily have to go try to say, hey, you're a sinner and you need a savior, but somebody that you can just say, hey, you're not going to believe this, or, or I should have told you this a long time ago, um, but, but, but my life was radically changed when I was the age of whatever. Um, and and I, don't, I maybe don't always show that the best in this context, but I want you to kind of know that. I mean, I'm learning some things at church that are kind of driving me to make some changes in the things that I'm doing. And you may start to see some of those changes, right? Is there anybody in your life that doesn't know your testimony that you could potentially share your testimony with this week? In addition to you kind of looking back through all these notes and saying, is there anything here application-wise that makes sense for me right now? Family worship questions. How did each disciple in this passage come to follow Jesus? Kind of review this with your family, with your kids. And is there anyone that our family can invite to church that has been hesitant to follow Jesus? Maybe there's somebody that, that you have, have shared the gospel with, you've tried to witness to, there's not been a response yet. Maybe the next step is just to invite them to something that, that they can experience um, other people talking about Jesus. They can see the change that, that God creates in the lives of other people besides just you. Encourage you with those two things there. Okay? Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for this passage. We thank you that you called these individuals to follow you. We thank you that you empowered them to respond to these different invitations that were given. God, we thank you that for many of us in this room, at some point you chose to to expose us to the gospel as well, and that through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we responded to the gospel. God, I pray that we would would see the glories of of Jesus and, and the gospel in a way that demands that we share it with other people, that we would be just as excited and empowered to share those things as we are some of the frivolous things that we get excited about sharing with others. God, help us to continue to think through people that we know that need to know Jesus and how we can be the connecting point for them, how we can be the one who comes and and shares with them in such a way where they believe us or our influence with them is such that we can invite them to come see and learn more about this Jesus. Again, Father, I pray that through this study, it's not just about filling our heads up with more knowledge about you, but that it leads to change in our lives and that it leads to people coming to know you through our efforts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.